Hey, we are in week eight of this study through the book of James, and um, James is taking us through this series of evaluations, this, this series of tests in which we can look in a mirror and we can evaluate ourselves and say, am I becoming more and more like the image of Jesus Christ? And along the way, we continue to look at those tests and say, oops, I'm not doing so well, but that's okay because the application, you can write this in your outline, is God's expectation for me is progress, not perfection. It's progress, not perfection. It's progress, not perfection. We have to remind ourselves of that or you'll want to beat yourself up all the time. Or you'll just say, no, I don't want to hear any more from James. But James has such important stuff for us. And God's expectation is not that we're going to be perfect and that we're going to be a perfect reflection of everything that we read in the book of James. But he does want us to show progress in our journey to becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Back in uh, the 18, 1803, there was this big dispute between Ohio and Michigan. Now, they're known for their football rivalry, right? But this was before that. Ohio had become an official state. Michigan was still a territory. And all of a sudden, Ohio had claimed this little sliver of land where the city of Toledo was found. Well, Michigan was really upset, and they were claiming that land for themselves as well. And so this big border dispute happened, and it was going back and forth. And for weeks, it got really, really tense. And both the state of Ohio and the territory of Michigan actually sent militia to guard the border in case the other side was going to invade. Well, the president finally got involved and uh, President Andrew Jackson got involved in 1835. And uh, he began to try to negotiate this deal. Now, he was really after the very valuable electoral votes of the state of Ohio. And so he was kind of leaning in that direction. But in 1836, they came to a compromise. And what we saw happen was that Michigan gave up the, the land that Toledo was in. So that became part of the state of Ohio. They actually, in exchange, received statehood and a portion of the Upper Peninsula. So all of that was going on. And a lot of people viewed that decision, they were really upset about it. I mean, you can imagine, it it was so tense for so long that a lot of people were really upset. But there was one lady that was actually pretty happy to be, they said, an Ohioan. It must have been before the word Buckeye came out. And so there was this one woman that said she was really happy to, to now belong to the state of Ohio because she said, here's her quote, Thank the Lord, I never did like that Michigan weather anyway. So now, now she's in Ohio. She doesn't have to worry about that Michigan weather. And you know, that's, that's kind of funny. Okay, mildly funny. Okay, it amused me. But it does raise this question. What is it that, that starts fights and quarrels among us? And that's the question that we look at today in the book of James. What causes countries to go to war and to raise up arms and to shed blood? What causes family members to turn their backs on other family members? What causes Christians to become disengaged in the church, which is the body of Jesus Christ? And this week, again, we're reminded of the question, what causes someone to be so filled with hate, so filled with bitterness and brokenness that they actually plot to go into a room full of innocent people and they open fire? Well, James addresses this kind of conflict that builds up inside of us, this tension, this battle that's going on inside of each and every one of us, and he addresses it in the context of the church. And so we're thinking, well, what? The church? The church was at conflict? Well, yes, it was, and and we've seen that in our lifetime. And so James is addressing that. And so put it all into context, James chapter 4, and I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 6. 
James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Your desire, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend everything that you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he, talking about God, jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. So the people that James has in mind when he writes this are in, a, are in a state where they are hostile toward God. They have become enemies of God. Their actions say that they hate God or they hate God's word or they hate God's will. And if you look at verse 2, he uses these words, you desire, you kill, you covet, you quarrel, you fight. That's pretty strong language, don't you agree? It's pretty strong language. I mean, he could have chosen any, any style of language. He could have chosen any words to, to sort of use as a metaphor to, to describe what he wants to, but he chooses these very violent words because they express the intensity and the destruction of conflict in the church. So if we kind of break this down here, just, just kind of quick here, and there are some parallel passages that we're going to look at. Um, he talks about the fights and the quarrels that are going on in the church. And what we know is that discord in the church, a lack of unity in the church among the church body is completely the opposite of God's design. John 13, 34 and 35 says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And I love this. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. How, how is the world around us going to know that we are followers of Jesus Christ? If you love one another. I think it's beautiful. And he talks about these desires that we have. And what he's talking about in this context is that there, there are people in the church that continue to have these passionate desires for worldly pleasures. And that becomes this source of conflict that is welling up in them and then is coming out of them in the, in the form of quarrels and arguments in the church. If you remember back in James chapter 1 and verse 14, James said this, Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And he goes on to use this word kill. You don't get what you want, and so you kill. And that's amazing. When you think about the people that he's talking to here, that hate and anger and bitterness would lead to this kind of intensity. People are so driven by their own evil desires that they would fight to the death to get what they want. You know, and right now we may be saying, well, he's not talking about me. I mean, I would never commit murder because, you know, I wanted something and I couldn't get it or I wanted my way and I wasn't getting it. We may not commit murder, but we may, we may kill a person's reputation. We may kill a person's joy. We may kill a person's effectiveness. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus said, yeah, of course. You've heard it said for generations, don't murder. Jesus raises the bar and he says, if you have hate in your heart for a brother or sister... If you, or if you are angry with them and you're not working through this and, and getting to the root and working out your problems, then you're under the same kind of judgment. 
And he calls them adulterous people. You know, again, really harsh language. And this metaphor is, is, is used all throughout the Bible and especially in the Old Testament. And it's this description of spiritual unfaithfulness. These people are taking the affection that they should have pointed toward God and they are, they are pointing this affection towards the, the, the evil that's in the world. Mark 8, 38 says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them. And he says, don't you know that anybody that is, that is friends with the world is an enemy of God? He talks about this friendship, this strong emotional attraction, this longing that people had for the things of this world, this struggle that was going on inside of them, actively hostile enemies of God. James makes it clear here with the wording that there is absolutely no middle ground where we can just kind of coast by and say, well, you know, the world's over here, God's over here, I'm just going to kind of, I'm just going to kind of wiggle in the middle, you know, I'm just going to kind of coast along. There is no middle ground. And he basically makes it clear that not doing good is doing harm. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 and 30, whoever is not with me is against me. If you're not my friend, then you stand in opposition to me. You, you are my enemy. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So if you're not part of my ministry, if you're not working with me to accomplish my goals in this world of shedding God's love and God's grace and God's mercy to people that so desperately need it, if you're not part of the solution, then you're part of the problem. He uses this word, you know, don't you know that God is a jealous God? You know, that word has been misunderstood in this context for a long time. In fact, I heard this story this week that, that Oprah, and you know who Oprah is? You guys remember Oprah? So Oprah was in, in some big church, some big mega church in Chicago, and she was sitting there, and the preacher talked about this concept of our God being a jealous God. And she quotes that day, that moment, that scripture, as a reason that she could never be a Christian. Because if God could be jealous of me, kind of God is that? I can't worship a God that, that is jealous of me. In this passage, I have no idea what the preacher was saying about it. Either she was tuned out and not listening, or, or he was kind of off his rocker, but, but this, this concept can be misunderstood. This is not a human jealousy. God is not jealous of you. God is jealous for you. God wants what is best for you. That is what he has in mind. And by the way, what is best for you is a relationship with him. So do you understand how it goes full circle? When God is a jealous God, God wants what is best for you. The way that you may be jealous and want something that is perhaps not best for you. But then he goes on to say that we actually, in this context, when we are, when we are fighting and bickering, when we've got this struggle going on inside of us, when we are turning our backs on God and we are, we are pointing our affections to the things of this world, that God sheds even more grace on us. And that is amazing to me because God had every right to, to destroy us. God had every right to, to ignore us or to withdraw his affection from us. But write this in your notes. God sees our spiritual bankruptcy as an opportunity to love us more. God sees how spiritually bankrupt we are. And instead of, of turning away from us, he sees that as an opportunity to love us even more. And James says, he gives us even more grace. Listen to how Paul said it to the church in Rome. Romans 5.20, Paul said, the law was brought in 
so that the trespass might increase. Okay, so God's law is here so that you can recognize that you are a sinner. Because without that standard, without that rule, without that measurement, you may go through life thinking that you're pretty good, that you're okay. So the law comes in so that the trespass increases or the recognition of the sin, the recognition of the trespass increases. And then why? But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So we're living our sinful lives. God's law comes into the picture. We recognize God's law. We realize that we are trespassing. We realize that we are sinners. And instead of God turning away from us in our sinfulness, grace abounds even more. Now in this passage in James chapter 4, we're actually going to skip a section and go down to the end of this passage. And uh, then we're going to go back to the middle. It's kind of like the reverse way that you like to eat an Oreo cookie. You know, you eat the inside first. We're going to come back to the inside, okay? Because that's the meat that I want us to look at. But we're skipping down to the end of this passage, verses 11 and 12, where James gives this very, very important reminder. He says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law, and he judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. And what does he do? He gives us more grace. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, James does not forbid confronting someone that is in sin, that is commanded all throughout Scripture. That that is an act of love when you go to someone and you do that. Jesus commanded us to judge correctly. But he does condemn careless, derogatory, critical, slanderous accusations against each other that does so much harm. He says anybody that speaks against a brother, anybody who's going to speak evil of a, of a brother or sister in Christ is trying to push them down and lift yourself up. And you're lifting yourself up as if you are the judge. And if you're lifting yourself up to where you are the judge, then you take the place of the law. And there's only one lawgiver, and that is God who gave the law. He alone is the authority to save those who repent. He is the only one that can protect us from the penalty of our sin. And he is the only one that has the right to destroy those that refuse to repent. So he says, who are you to judge your brother? We're not to judge a person's hearts or their motives or their intentions. But we are to evaluate a person's behavior and and the fruits that they display in their lives. And we're to do that only by the standard of our one lawgiver. So now we're going to back up to James chapter 4 and verse 7. We're going to start going down through that now. And these commands that James gives us in this section, these commands revealed by James, they are invitations to a better life. And, and that's something that's so important for us to remember all throughout Scripture, where they have the lists of the do's and the lists of the do-nots, all, all of the commands, all of the things that we are, we are told that we must do or that we must stay away from. Those are not things that are, God's not trying to rob you from any kind of joy. God is not trying to, to keep a big secret from you. You know, it's nothing like that. Anytime that there's a command in scripture, God is actually through that command, inviting you to something better. And isn't that the way that we want to raise our kids? That when we say, don't touch the stove, it's hot, get away from the stove. We're inviting them to be free from the pain and the agony and, and the, the, the hurt that comes from touching the hot stove. When we, when we tell them, no, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to go to that place or you're not allowed to be around that person. 
Aren't we trying to invite them into a life because we have more life experience and we know where that road's headed, right? We're trying to invite them down a different road. And that's the same with the commands that James gives us in this passage. And so let's look at verse 7 and 8. James says, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Number one in your notes, I am invited to stand with God and against the devil. I am invited to stand with God and against the devil. This word to, to stand is, is the word that would be used by soldiers that are under the authority of their commanders. So when you stand with God, you're standing with God under his authority. He is the commander of your life. And James uses this word to describe somebody that is willingly submissive to God's authority and his sovereign rule of the universe and the rule of our lives. And a truly humble person will give their allegiance to God. They will obey his commands. They will follow his leadership. And when you stand with God, you actively stand against the devil. You actively stand against the devil. That's what that word resist means. It doesn't just mean passively resist Satan, but it means to actively stand against him. So we need to trust God with our wants and our needs and our desires and stand with him and submit to his authority. James continues in verse 8. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Number two in your notes, I'm invited to be cleansed inside and out. That's what that passage is telling us. The Old Testament priests had to ceremonially wash their hands before they could approach God. Sinners who would approach God would recognize and confess their sins. And cleansing your hands symbolizes this external behavior. But the phrase about purifying your hearts refers to our inner thoughts and our inner motives and our inner desires of the heart. And so we need to invite God to search our hearts as David did. You remember David after his terrible sin with Bathsheba and his repentance? He said, God, just, you know, just search my heart. Find anything that's unclean in it. Verse 9, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, we sang a song, an opening song, and we're going to close with the same song, where Jesus was saying, I'm going to turn your, uh, your sorrows into joy. I'm going to turn your crying into laughter. And that is what God does for the believer. You know, when we look at things with an eternal perspective, we realize that we may be suffering in this world, but ultimately and eternally, we are going to be so filled with joy to be in God's presence forever and ever that we can let our, our weeping turn to joy. But here, James is, is turning it around and saying, I want you to look at this from a different perspective. Some of you are, are going through life just kind of laughing and, and snickering and going along with the things of this world. And you need to take that kind of laughter and you need to be brokenhearted by it. You need to take that kind of joy and it needs to turn into gloom and into, into sorrow. Number three in your notes, I am invited to be brokenhearted by my sin. Not snicker at it, not wink at it, not ignore it or pretend like it's not there, but I am invited to recognize the sin in my life and to be brokenhearted by it. That means to be afflicted, to be miserable. God will not turn away from the broken heart that turns to him. Now, this final command, number four in your notes, this final command, it kind of sums up everything else. It's, the, it's the, the base for everything, and it marks the truly humble person. James 4, verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And number four in your notes is, I am invited to be humbled and to be exalted. 
okay? When you humble yourself, God promises that he will lift you up. I am invited to be humbled by myself and then to be exalted by God. Matthew 23, 12 says, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who are humble, those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this word about humbling means to, to make oneself low. Those conscious of being in the presence of a majestic and an infinitely holy God humble themselves. Those conscious of being in the presence of God who, who wants what is best for you and sheds more grace on your rebellion naturally will humble themselves. And God will lift you higher in your humility than you could ever lift yourselves through your own efforts. Now, I want to take a minute to talk about our next step for this week. And, and it was suggested to me, and I thought it was a great suggestion. So you see me doing this every week, that what if I gave you some really, really tangible application, something that you could go home and do. And so every week we've been doing this, and I've been giving you a next step. I've been giving you some challenge at the end of the message. And, and, and this, may, this may scratch where you itch, and it may not. So you may go home and really apply yourself to, to these applications, or, or there may be something else, and that's totally fine. This week, I, I really... I really urge you to take this next step very seriously. And so you can write this in your notes. We're going to go through the fill in the blanks, and then I'm going to talk about it for a minute. This week, write this in your notes. This week, I will have a quiet time with just me and God. This week, I will have a quiet time with just me and God. You want me to tell you when most of my quiet time with God is? When I'm walking the dogs at 5 a.m. around our neighborhood. That's not what I'm talking about here. Or when I'm driving around. And I pray and I, and I have time with God during those moments. That's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm going to challenge you to do cannot be done while you're walking the dog and it cannot be done while you're driving your car. So I want to challenge you to have a quiet time this week. I don't care how long it is, but have a quiet time one time, just one time this week, and it's just you and God. That means that you got to get somebody to, to take care of the kids. That means that you got to find a place where you can be quiet, right? You got to find a place where you can get away from everything. And if you can't find that kind of place, call me. I'll schedule you to be in this room and you'll be the only one here. I'll lock the door. You can turn the lights out, whatever you want to do. But it can be a moment between just you and God. And you need to have that time this week. Just one time this week. So let's fill in these blanks and then I'll explain how they came from this scripture. The first fill in the blank, the first bullet here is bow before God. Now, you should write, or you should write one word here, but, but to kneel, to bow, to prostrate before God. Not prostrate, prostrate. That's different. <laughs> Just kind of ruined a moment there, didn't I? But, but if you will, talk about humbling yourself. So it, if you will humble yourself before God, what I want to encourage you to do is whatever you're physically able to do. Not, not say, well, I'm comfortable just... I'm comfortable just bowing my head so I won't kneel. Now, I'm not talking about being comfortable. I'm talking about what you can physically do. If you have a physical problem to where you cannot lay flat on the ground with your face in the ground before God during this quiet time, then that's fine. Do, do what you can do. But if you can do that, even if it's uncomfortable, if you can do that, choose to humble yourself in that way and do that for God this week. The next bullet is to search my heart just to shine a bright light on the dark places in my heart. And the next bullet is to confess my sinfulness. The next one is to repent of my sinfulness. 
It's not enough to just recognize the sin in our lives, but we must turn from it. We must repent. The next bullet is to welcome any outward expression. I'll talk about what that means in just a moment. But welcome any outward expression. And the last one is to stand a forgiven sinner, someone that has experienced this grace that James is talking about. Bow before God, search my heart, confess my sinfulness, repent of my sinfulness, welcome any outward expression, and stand a forgiven sinner. Now I want you to listen to this run-on sentence that I'm going to read to you, and I'm going to stay really close to my notes here because I don't want to miss anything, and you'll see where these bullet points were pulled out of this passage from James. So this week, I will have a quiet time with just me and God. And in that time, I will bow, or I will kneel, or I will prostrate myself as a symbol of submission to Him and a symbol of my humility. And I will invite God to search the dark places of my heart and to reveal anything that's in my heart that doesn't honor Him. And I will confess my sin, being specific and out loud, I will confess my sin. I will ask God to break my heart over the things that breaks his heart as I turn to him in repentance. And I will welcome tears as an outward expression of what's happening in my heart. He said to let your laughter turn to sorrow. Let your joy turn to gloom. If you cry, let it go. Let it happen. Let any outward expression happen there. But then when you stand up at the end of this time between just you and God, when you stand up, When I stand, I will stand with the authority of God's word. I will stand a forgiven sinner experiencing abundant grace. I will stand against the devil and his schemes to have a grip on my life. I will stand not by my own strength, but because God is lifting me up. And I pray that you will speak these words out loud this week. And I pray that you will hear yourself say these words. And if you can't find a safe place to do this and to make this noise out loud and you need some quiet time, man, you call me and we will schedule you to be in this place just between you and God. And the memory verse this week is James 4.10 that says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. There's more than one place in the Bible that says there will come a day when you will be humbled. There will come a day when you will kneel before the Son of God. I just want to encourage you to bow your knee before God before he bows it. Experience his grace and his love. Let's pray. Our Father, we again come to you and we love you and we seek to honor you in what we do. And Lord, I pray that uh, as as we turn our hearts to you right now, I just pray that as you receive us, that if there's anything uncomfortable that's going on, if there's anything that's been stirred up, that we don't just forget about it so easily, that we don't just go on to the next thing in our day. And, and uh, you know, Lord, don't let us enjoy lunch until we have come face to face with whatever you want us to accomplish this day. Don't let us enjoy the sunshine. Don't let us enjoy the companionship of our friends and family. Keep us uncomfortable until we break our hearts And we turn to you. And then, Lord, as we receive your grace, we pray for healing and and love and mercy. And as we experience those things from you, help help us to spread that to others, that they may experience forgiveness and love and mercy from us.
We ask all of this in the name of your son. Amen.